My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Hello, I'm Mandy Zucker, host of The Morning Meeting. Today on the show, I'm interviewing Susan Angel Miller. Susan is a keynote speaker, a grief facilitator, a donor mom, and the author of the memoir, Permission to Thrive, which she wrote after the sudden death of her teenage daughter, Laura. I hope you find some meaning in this interview. I know I did. Susan Angel Miller, thank you so much for being here on the Morning Meeting Podcast. I'm really happy to have you. Well, it's so great to be here. It's been great getting to know you. Absolutely. I've been reading your book and I'm excited to talk about it today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and the motivation that you had for writing a book? Thanks for asking about my book. My husband and I had been living in a, a suburb of Milwaukee in 2009 we had uh, Laura, who was 14 and a half, Sarah, who was 12 and a half, and Rachel, who was nine. We were pretty much a typical family doing all the carpooling and stress of raising, you know, three daughters um, in school, but it was all good in general. Uh, my husband and I had met in high school, actually. We had both pretty sheltered, calm, uneventful childhoods. We uh, had moved up from uh, the Chicago area to Milwaukee and, you know, we'd had the normal bumps and bruises along the way, but things typically worked out for us. So in January of 2009, when Laura um, was a high school freshman, she was in the middle of high school finals and she was pretty stressed out and started complaining about headaches. We didn't think too much of it. We thought, okay, we'll give her some Tylenol, but they kept getting worse. She asked us to get her from school a couple of times. And on a Wednesday morning, February 18th, she woke up, she threw up several times. She asked me why I had four eyes and she had a seizure all within about an hour. So we, I called 911, an ambulance took her to the hospital where she woke up and we were told from a CT scan that she had a mass at the back of her head. And I remember thinking, okay, this is bad, but it'll be benign and it'll be removed and everything will go back to normal. And I was alone at the time because my husband was traveling, but I just, you know, I had been actually planning my second daughter's bat mitzvah, which was supposed to happen in 10 days. So I was in party planning mode, not my daughter has a brain tumor mode. It was really hard for my brain to, to switch, switch to a different type of reality. So my husband comes to the hospital later that evening, and we had been told by the surgeon that the brain tumor could be removed in two days. This was a Wednesday. It could be removed on Friday when the operating room became available. But the headaches became worse for Laura, and we were in the room when she got some medicine that she didn't react to very well, and she stopped breathing. They immediately rushed her down to put a shunt in. And I remember the surgeon came out and he said the procedure went okay, but she's not reacting the way we'd like. And the next thing we knew, we were up in an ICU 
room where Laura was attached to every machine possible. And as a mom, I just knew she wasn't there. Like I could feel the, like the presence of her absence. And it, it was almost like I, I, I knew it in my gut, but I couldn't believe it because it was so shocking how fast all of this had happened. She had been in school that Tuesday afternoon. This was Wednesday night. And now she was on mechanical support. And they told us that she wasn't experiencing any pain. I didn't know it at the time how bad that was. Um, the doctors really didn't want us to know. And we didn't want to know ourselves. So fast forward three days later, we got the news that we feared but didn't want to hear. And the surgeon told us that she was basically brain dead, that it had been, it was a, a, a brain bleed. It, the, the tumor had gotten to be too much for her. So I remember, you know, everything was like in slow motion. We still didn't believe what was happening. We went back up to the family waiting room where the, a lot of our family had gathered. And the next thing I know, a woman in a white coat was asking us if she gave us the first condolences that we would hear, which was very strange. And then she asked us very nicely if we would consider donating Laura's organs. And we didn't know what to say. And we decided eventually to yes, do it. And that end has ended up being quite a light in our darkness. Um, because we've met the woman that received Laura's liver and that that has been a surprisingly uh, good piece of news and a, has really created meaning for us uh, through Laura's death. So really that's that's the the crux of our story other than it's hard to explain the devastation that occurs when your life is upended in this kind of ridiculous unthinkable way. We had become those parents that had experience the thing that happens only on the news, except now we were those people on the news. I've been listening to the audiobook. So I actually, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very powerful. Uh, I'm sure the book's powerful too, to read, but it's very powerful to listen to your own voice as you're sharing that story. And you certainly get into a lot more detail in the book. And you talk a lot about, you know, your other two daughters and you mentioned that, you know, really you, you uh, decided to do the organ donation because one of your daughters uh, really encouraged you to, which I thought was uh, amazing and beautiful and so glad that you included your kids and, you know, decisions at such a difficult time when it's so easy to just, you know, not focus on anybody else. And you really uh, had the presence of mind to be thinking about your kids like that, um, which I thought was really special and extraordinary. You know, you did mention that you know, or donating her organs really provided some meaning in this whole awful time when it feels often to so many people like there is no reason for this to happen. And there is no reason. I mean, you know, I don't want to say that Laura died so that somebody else could live. But I am curious about how you, you know, how you came to some kind of understanding or I don't know if that's even the right word, but that, that you can make meaning from this loss that you can, you know, we're going to talk about the term post-traumatic growth. Um, I don't know when you first heard that term um, or thought, oh, that's something that maybe I would like in my life or talk a little bit more about all of that. Sure. Well, you have, that's a lot of, a lot there to digest and to answer. So the organ donation decision in itself was something that 
it, it almost felt like it was it was meant to be because it really didn't have to be that way. Usually people that have cancer are not allowed to donate their organs. The team that made this happen at the hospital did everything they possibly could to make sure that her organs were used. And we had this unbelievable, I wouldn't say luck, but her liver, Laura's liver um, was transplanted into a woman who was 40 years old at the time and a special ed teacher and just a lovely person who had been in a coma for 10 days, a liver coma for 10 days. Basically her husband was saying goodbye to her at the same moment the liver was being transplanted by plane from Milwaukee to New York. And it does, it gives me chills just thinking about it. And then it took up for us, it took about a year and a half before we could connect with her, before we could um, waive all of our privacy and confidentiality on both sides. And we actually met her in, um, we met her in a hotel room in New York City over spring break. And it, ha it was very meaningful for our children because it, it did give them some meaning. I mean, Laura's life was so senseless. You know, she was 14. It, it was a medulloblastoma cancerous brain tumor that only occurs 250 times in the US each year. So it was like winning the lottery in reverse. And I remember the first time that our children spoke to Trish on the phone when we first learned her identity. And when our conversation ended, I remember our girls running down the steps and actually dancing in the kitchen. They were so excited to know that some good had come out of something so unbelievable. So, so let's see, your other question was, when did I hear about the term post-traumatic growth? I have to add in that um, we were really putting one foot in front of the other, even though our life had been upended and we had gone through the, this traumatic shift of of our assumptions about life being upended, right? We thought life was supposed to go a certain way. We thought there were certain rules in life that you raised children, they didn't die on you within a day. For us, it was like a car crash that happened, not a cancer diagnosis. I mean, we didn't even have an oncologist. She died within, for, from cancer in, in a day, which is you know unheard of, but it happened to us. So fast forward a couple of years and we were surviving as a family and even, I would say, thriving. You know, it, we were putting one foot in front of the other. Our daughters were now three years older. They were doing fine in school. It doesn't mean that we weren't in distress and, and sad and, and still grieving the loss of Laura, but we, we were functioning as a family. And I didn't quite understand why that was possible. I had lost a daughter, everyone's worst nightmare, but somehow we were. And so when my sister-in-law talked to me over Thanksgiving and she, she just, she was working with, with um, military veterans that were acclimating back to civilian life. And she was in that world. And she said to me, Susan, you've, you've heard about post-traumatic growth, haven't you? And I remember like hearing those words and Remembering, you know, I knew that what post-traumatic stress was, and this is obviously different than that because it's post-traumatic growth. I didn't know anything about it, but I, those three words really, they resonated with me in some way. And I remember my, my shoulders kind of dropping and like taking a, a sigh because it meant to me that this was something that happened to people after a trauma that they grew from it. 
And she left and I immediately Googled the term. And I learned that so many of the aspects of this growth that occurs after trauma had happened to us without us knowing it, right? So it is a term, a positive psychology term that these two professors down at UN, University of North Carolina uh, discovered in 1995, um, it, professors Tedeschi and Calhoun, and they talk about this post-traumatic growth as this wisdom and learning that you gain from having something happen in your life that upends your life assumptions. And I learned that, yes, I now had deeper friendships. I was more grateful for life. I had more compassion for people who had also gone through uh, tragic events. I had an increase in my self-confidence for getting through each day. I saw new possibilities in life and had discovered some meaning and purpose in different areas. And I was more open to spirituality. I was you know, reading books on philosophy and thinking about my, my life as larger than just myself and trying to grapple with the meaning and struggling with the painful emotions. And I just, I went, wow, this is a universal message of hope. And it's not a term that many people have heard about. Even people in the psychology world, the social work world, it's a very small percentage, maybe five or 10% of the people that I ask, you know, if they're familiar with this term, know what it's all about. It is, um, you know, it's really interesting. I, um, I've been working with a family recently who they've actually talked about it, um, not knowing the words, but this feeling of, I have learned something. And then also the guilt that they feel like, I have, I've almost bettered myself because of this tremendous loss. And that feels awful. And, you know, you hear a lot about the struggle that people have, even admitting that maybe something good has come, even though they would take, give it all back in a second. You know, I don't need to grow at all. I could be, you know, flat and, uh, and never learn anything again, if I could just have my daughter back. You're, you're nailing post-traumatic growth on its head right there because, you know, there are some caveats to the concept, right? That we all, it's not a Pollyannish concept like, oh, this happened for a reason or there's rainbows and butterflies and everything is okay because we experience this growth. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone experiences the growth and not everyone experiences it at the same time or to the same extent. The just because we're in, we've experienced the growth doesn't mean we're still not in despair and grieving the loss of Laura. That's going to happen every time that a new event, you know, a new milestone event occurs with my children. It's going to, you know, the grief is constantly reignited when you think it, when, when you think it's going to happen and when you don't think it's going to happen. So just because you have growth doesn't mean you don't have the distress. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important for people to understand. It's, um, you know, it's really like this parallel process at the same time, you know, it's, you don't have to be, you know, grieving or growing. You can be grieving and growing at the same time. And I think that's so important for people to understand because I think that guilt is so powerful that I can't feel good or enlightened or inspired and honor the feelings of grief and loss that I have. I I think that that concept of having 
opposing contradictory emotions at the same time is is so important even if someone's not grieving yeah i mean you can be happy and sad you can be fearful and also courageous mm -hmm. you can be distressed and also joyful i mean that's how we are as humans and it's i mean it's that concept of bittersweet bittersweet feelings mm -hmm. and it's all a jumble sometimes and that's just how it is and um but I think the other piece of post-traumatic growth that's important to understand is, you know, we shouldn't judge each other for the amount of growth or the lack of it that people experience because each person's situation is so different. And of course, you, you mentioned it before, we would never have traded losing Laura for any amount of growth that occurred. Um, you know, I remember about nine months after Laura died, I was walking with this very good friend of mine who was really my, my guardian angel, my saint, because she was there for me so much after the, after Laura's death. And I remember turning to her and trying to say um, what your client had told you is that I was feeling guilty and it wasn't politically correct to say, but I felt that we had received some benefits. And I had to put that in like quote air quotes, benefits from Laura's death. And one of those was that my friend and I had gotten to have a deeper friendship that my children were more compassionate to other friends who had had people die in their life. And it, it did, it felt very um, guilt producing that I could be doing okay, even though that this bad event had occurred. So when I learned about that, there was this area of post-traumatic growth and their research shows that like 75% of people who've gone through a trauma will experience one or more aspects of the growth, which is, is amazing. It's very, it's a hopeful kind of concept that that propelled me beyond the grief story that we had, beyond the organ donation story that we had. The idea of post-traumatic growth, that theme made me realize our story had some meaning and could provide others with this hopeful path. I also think, you know, you, you mentioned that the first time you heard about post-traumatic growth was about nine months, right? After Laura died, is that what you said? Um, well, actually, I, it was actually longer than that. Okay. It, it was the, uh, the nine months was the first time that I was able to voice oh. the fact that I thought I had some type of growth. And, okay. but it was about three and a half years later that I learned of the topic. Okay. From a from a book I read called The Other Side of Sadness. Mm -hmm. so you learn you learn things from all different directions. You do. You do. My um my the reason I was asking was just because I struggle sometimes when I'm talking about post traumatic growth because I don't I don't want to diminish the process that people have to go through. So when somebody dies, you know, oftentimes people are thinking there is no reason for this. There's nothing good that's going to come of this. And as somebody that wants to support them, telling them you're going to grow from this 75% of people grow from this loss is not helpful. It does not make them feel better to, to know that at some point, maybe I'm going to have deeper relationships with my friends or, you know, write a book and help other people. I'm, I'm cautious sometimes to talk about it because people who don't necessarily understand that often, you know, you want to find something to make someone feel better, right? When, right when somebody dies, all we want to do is make them feel better, which we can't, but we look for things to do that. And saying something like, 
there's a reason for this. You're going to help someone later. Isn't the way. I think I would have punched someone in the face if they had suggested that, that there was this silver lining behind Laura's death or that I would grow from it. This was a process that was completely organic. This was something that just, I felt in my gut and didn't feel as though I could acknowledge it. And so what I am trying to encourage, you know, friends and family and also, you know, clinical social workers to do is when they're working and, and supporting people that they, you know, are working with, it's about acknowledging that these things can exist and helping those people nurture those feelings. So it's like noticing when their friend or their client is talking about these glimmers of hope and just acknowledging that, yes, those things do happen to many people. And how do you feel about that? And how can we, you know, how can you, you use those to kind of fuel additional forward movement? So I think you're bringing up a very good point that this is, this is about, this is about an event happening but the growth doesn't just occur because the event happened. It's really a transformation that the person has to go through. It's all about the struggle. It's all about the struggle with the emotions and the pain and the discomfort and the the daily grind of not understanding what this world is all about and trying to be self-aware and figure out like a new identity and a new path forward for yourself. So it's not like the event happened to you and then all of a sudden this growth just immediately occurred. It's about walking through the mud kind of and and little by little, those glimmers of hope start taking root. So I think, you know, as I'm listening to you and certainly uh, in my own work, I feel like uh, the message that's been so solidified in all of that is that you know, when you hear someone who's grieving talking about, you know, the fact that they have made some meaning out of a loss, that they do feel like there's been some, you know, some positive things that have happened even because of the death. um, That's, you know, that's okay for you to then, you know, acknowledge those moments. But um, you said organic, like it does, you have to follow their process, not uh, impose, you know, this idea or, uh, force it on someone when they're not ready. And I wish I could say like, they'll be ready in three and a half years, but we don't know exactly when it will happen for each person. No. And, and actually, and the other piece is that we also don't know what type of trauma, you know, the whole type, the whole concept of trauma is different for each person, right? Like for some people, the death of a child is a trauma. Other people, a trauma can be having had a car accident when they were 10 years old or having a, a divorce in their family. Or, And so it just depends on what, what happened to them, what type of support they've been given, what, um, how emotionally self-aware they are. There's so many different um, elements to, to make each situation so unique. And there is also research that says, you know, being educated, being open to people, um, having a community of support around you, having healthy relationships before a bad event happens, that those all 
help increase the likelihood that post-traumatic growth will happen and will happen to a greater extent. So I almost think of it as like pre-traumatic growth. Like, you know, everyone is so worried, understandably about, oh my gosh, when's that next shoe going to drop? My life seems perfect right now. Everything's calm. I know bad things will happen in the future. What will that bad thing be? And yes, that bad thing will happen. We often can't predict it. We can't prevent it. But what we can do is if you're as emotionally healthy, physically healthy, mentally healthy and happy, you know, strong relationships, that just but buttresses yourself and and really helps when that bad event occurs. Absolutely. You know, and I understand you in some way from the negative effects of that trauma. It's almost like a vaccine. I mean, it's <laughs> it's really a just a way of right improving your immune response to something that is going to be very destabilizing, but for us, I mean, we know we knew we had the benefit of being part of a strong community before Laura died. And therefore people were able to come to our assistance after she died. You know, we had fortunately the resources so that I didn't have to go back to work. And I know that not everyone has those benefits, those resources, but just knowing that the more we can have those, our ducks in a row, the better we'll be in, in surviving and thriving after an event. Absolutely. Right. So if there are things that you can do to sort of um, build some of that support in, if you're not in a situation right now where you need it. Um, now's the time. They always say it's never too late until it's too late. So doing it before you need it is obviously, you know, going to be most helpful when that tra- trauma happens. Exactly. And I think for myself, the community and having friends and family that I could talk to was the healing, my healing from the grief. It was me talking and talking and talking and trying to process what had happened. And fortunately having friends and family that were willing to listen, they were willing to show up for us. They were willing to not judge. They were willing to not, not ignore us. Um, and to, and they were willing to not try to fix it. Right. They kind of got fortunately, even though it was extremely painful for them, that we had lost a daughter, right? Because it makes them fearful that they could also lose a child that quickly. They were very good at listening to me and letting me tell my story again and again. And that that helped me tremendously. I was just gonna actually ask like, what was it like for you to write a book? I mean, you do go into a lot of detail about, you know, what was going on in the days before she died and, what was that like? Was that healing for you in some way? You know, as I listened to you reading the book, uh, you know, I could certainly hear emotion in your voice and listening and picturing you as you're reading this thinking like how painful it must be to be sharing that and also healing. I think because I had done a lot of the work by talking it through the writing of the book was not as as painful as some might expect Mm -hmm. because I had absorbed it. I had integrated into my identity. This was who I was. And I was very, just by my personality, I was very willing to be upfront about it. You know, if this happened to us and it could help someone else, like why not, right? There was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing to hide. This had happened so suddenly we had done nothing wrong, but even if we had, you know, I mean, we, I wanted the story to, 
go be out there so that it could help other people. When I decided to audio to audio tape the book and to record it myself with my own voice, I didn't realize how emotional it would be to go revisit the words that I had written down three years prior and and really remember it all again. So yes, it was probably more emotional for me to read what I had written than to actually have written the words down in the first place. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking that. That's that's an interesting point. Um, And what has it been like since you've, you know, both of those things written the book as well as, you know, read it out loud, your stories out there in the world, like people that you don't know have read it and heard it. And what kind of feedback do you get? And how, how does that feel for you? Well, it's been beyond healing for me. It's this, it is a journey. And I'm so happy that I did write the book because it was my way of recording the events before my memory failed me. Mm-hmm. I, these, these events happened in a certain way. And I, I didn't want 10 years to go past and then to have some disagreement with someone of what happened. So I wanted to get the facts right. And then I wanted to honor my daughter by talking about her and then talking about my other children and how they were, they functioned throughout this horrific period. And then I wanted to share this message of hope. And, you know, we had immediately gone from this private family in this, in, in, in Milwaukee to a public family from a private family to a, a public family very quickly, right? When a 14 year old dies suddenly within a day, the, you know, the Milwaukee Journal did a story on her. The, we were just overwhelmed with an outpouring of shock and, and, and grief and, and support. And so I had to learn how to kind of carve our way forward. Like, I had never known anyone who had lost a child really. And like, was I supposed to wear black for the rest of my life? Were we supposed to never smile again? Were we, how could we keep parenting our children in the same community where everyone was staring at us all the time? And I had to learn, like, we just have to be courageous in getting out of the house after that first week or two of the funeral and all the, and all of those, the ceremonial stuff it was like, I had to go and drive my daughter to third grade. And I remember we're in a small town and I would be driving her to school and I would actually see someone I knew pass me in their minivan. And within those few seconds of us recognizing each other, I could see the woman's face acknowledge my grief with like the downturned mouth and the downturned eyes, like a, a look of pity. I could see the look of pity from the passing car. It was that kind of experience. And even when I went into a Starbucks and I would see parents of children who had been in Laura's grade, who were in Laura's grade still because their children were alive and Laura had died. And you could tell that they didn't want to talk to me and they were uncomfortable. And I remember just deciding I'm going up to that person and I'm going to say, you know, oh, Michelle, how's Abby doing? Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, she, she, the the woman was so, you know, I think happy to hear that I'd asked about her child 
And then I would bring up Laura's name because I needed to, I was the mom. I still really proud of her and wanted to brag about my daughter. Mm -hmm. And, but little by little, each interaction then that I would have would make it, would smooth it out a little bit. So people didn't feel quite as uncomfortable being around me. It was crazy. I had to like teach in like my worst moments. I had to teach other people how to treat us. Yep. I've heard that so many times and it's, you know, it's so unfortunate because you're suffering, you're exhausted, you're, it's so hard. And then you have this additional job of making other people feel comfortable around you, which awful and yet necessary for so many people. Right. Well, I think our society just does death and grief so poorly yeah. that even the most educated people that I'll talk to um, will, will walk away with the takeaway of, oh, we should talk about the person who died. We should mention their name as if that's this revolutionary concept. And I mean, I haven't heard anyone who's lost a loved one who doesn't want to hear that person's name. And yet so many people think that by bringing up Laura's name would make me more sad as if, as if by mentioning Laura, I would have forgotten that she had died or that she had lived. And, and that's all I wanted to talk about was Laura. And, you know, if it did make me sad in the moment, maybe I needed to cry. Maybe I needed a hug from that person, but it never made me feel as though the person had said the wrong thing. One thing I, um, I know we have to go soon, but I was just thinking about um, a couple of days ago was national write your story day. Mm-hmm. And I put a message out on my social media about, you know, how would you start your story? And I remember thinking when my dad died, I had this, you know, one image in my head. It it was the image like right before he died. And I kept replaying it and replaying it. And I just couldn't get it out of my, like, couldn't get it out of my mind. And I wrote it down and then I stopped replaying it in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that was because it was on paper. I wrote down everything I can think of, right? The smells and who was there and all the sounds that I heard and everything I was thinking in that moment. And, and it was so helpful to me to write down just, you know, I didn't write a book, um, but I wrote down just that one event. And I think it like kind of tricked my brain into thinking, you don't have to keep thinking about it because now it's on paper and writing a book for some people might be exactly what they need. And um, I do think writing can be so powerful and, and healing. And you may find some meaning as you are writing, thinking about all of the things that you've been through. But but it can be such a powerful tool. And I'm so glad that you know, you did it. And obviously, reading it is equally powerful. Well, thank you for that. And I think that when people do read stories, like they'll be reading what I'm saying and what my specific story is. And hopefully people won't have had to go through what we've gone through. But what I have heard is that people, while they're reading my story, will be thinking about their tragedy or the trauma in their life. And everyone has something like that, that is buried or (laughs) buried in their past. And so that makes me feel good that by my bearing my soul, they can then go a little bit deeper into their own. And I do truly believe that writing and doing art and, you know, taking walks in nature and, you know, being around animals, all the things that we hear about as being healthy coping mechanisms, they're also helpful in grief. I mean, to me, grief is really, it's just a mental health issue. It's, you know, grief is not just about the loss of, of a, a person. It can be the loss of anything. 
right? It can be the loss of your job or your um, hopes and dreams or your community or pandemic related losses of a loss of a graduation or um, whatever that else that might be. So we're all in grief kind of all the time. And we just don't always exhibit it to others. And I think if you don't really acknowledge it and deal with it, it just festers inside of you. And I think it could, it bubbles up and then can explode in unhealthy ways. And I think that especially in today's world, I mean, the pandemic, if it killed a million extra, you know, an excess of a million people, which probably it's even more than a million people in the US. And if each person that passed away has nine or 10 people that were connected to them, that is like 10 million people that are in addition to the normal people who are grieving are out there in in pain and, and needing people to talk to. And so the more we can educate about grief, I think the better off we'll be. The, the more we normalize grief. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. If people want to read your book, how do they find it? Well, um, they can go on my website at susanangelmiller.com. And the link on the um, homepage takes you to Amazon. And if you want to purchase it at your independent bookstores, you can also do that and they can order it for you. Um, and right now you can, you know, it's a paperback, a ebook, and it's also um, uh, in the audiobook that you mentioned. And I don't and, know if we know, mentioned the title. It's called Permission to Thrive. <laughs> My journey from grief to growth. Exactly. And I, you know, I really appreciate you helping me get the message out. And I love um, people connecting with me and telling me their stories. And so if anyone wants to go to the website and there's a contact form, um, that's always something that I appreciate um, when, you know, listening to other people's stories, I've kind of become this person that, you know, if, if someone has a tragedy in their, in their life, sometimes I, I get that call from people. And, and, you know, I, I feel as though that's kind of my meaning and purpose in sharing the story and you just never know who you're going to be able to, to touch and help at the right moment, right? We have all these random connections that <clears throat> we make a, along the way. And I don't think they're really that random. I think they're kind of meant to be. And I think even meeting you, Mandy, it, it was a kind of a circuitous route to getting to, to talk with each other. And so I think even our conversation today will help other people. I hope so. I certainly know that meeting you has been very supportive and helpful to me. So I am so glad that we were able to do that. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you to Susan for coming on the show. Next week, I will be interviewing Abby Hennigan, a singer songwriter and music therapist. We will talk about the loss of both of her parents as a teenager and how music was a powerful force in her grief process. I hope you will join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.